Welcome to TKG's Healthcare Insights, where we explore healthcare's critical issues, challenges, and trends with a focus on achieving the quadruple aim of enhancing patient experience, improving population health, reducing costs, and improving the work life of healthcare providers and staff. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. We're glad to have you listening today. I'm Warren Smedley with the Kinetics Group, and today we will be continuing our deeper dive into the findings from our recent Oncology Thought Leaders Network meeting. The Kinetics Group is dedicated to advancing the quadruple aim, and to that end, we have organized several strategic networks of excellence to provide our customers with insights, directional focus, and opportunities to collaborate on specific research and operational work projects. The Oncology Thought Leaders Network is a group of 16 senior-level oncology executives from across the country who bring a multidisciplinary perspective to the critical issues facing the delivery of high-quality cancer care. This group meets virtually each quarter, as well as provides ad hoc input and support for various client projects, grant-funded research, informational podcasts, and answering important operational questions on an ongoing basis. This is part two of our discussion. My co-hosts are Neil Pizer and Sarah Pugh, and our special guest is a great friend and colleague and thought leader panel member, Ellen Feinstein. Ellen is a longtime oncology and healthcare executive. Let's pick up where we left off. One of the issues you mentioned earlier, Ellen, was the access issue. So, you know, you've got folks who are located very far away from many of these major centers, and they might have access to primary care. They might even have access to an oncologist. But if they have a very complex form of cancer, they can't be adequately treated in that environment. And there's a, a propensity not to want to travel. The family doesn't want them to go elsewhere. So number one, what, what is the educational process for those types of patients? And number two, how might a kind of a a large cancer center, be it NCI designated or not, but a large, sophisticated cancer center, work with those communities? So, Neil, I think there are a couple of approaches. One is, and we talked about partnership, if we have positive relationships with those community oncologists, patients will listen to their referring physician. Um, And there's been, you know, data and studies done by the advisory board and other think tanks around this. So if the referring physician encourages the patient, yes, it is inconvenient, but we know that this NCI-designated cancer center or this provider is really the expert that is going to be able to address your particular type of complex diagnosis. We really encourage you. We've worked together. We communicate. I will be involved in your case. I'm not abandoning you. So it's, it's a little bit of an education and a sales job, if you will, for that referring physician to, um, to instill confidence in the patient that at the cost of the inconvenience, we're really talking about life-saving treatment and access to that treatment. And it may be just one type of treatment. Maybe it's just for their surgery mm-hmm. and everything else can be done in the community setting closer to home. We see that quite frequently with radiation therapy. There's no reason in many cases for a patient to have to come to an NCI-designated radiation therapy uh, facility, again, unless it's something complicated or requires technology that's not readily available like proton therapy, to share that patient and return them back to their community for that type of care. So that's the approach that, that I think could be taken. 
Um, and the other, I think, is imperative, as I've mentioned. I think we all, as NCI-designated cancer centers, owe it to our patients and the referring community to educate them around what is the distinction around NCI cancer centers? What is the distinction around having a SPORE grant or you know some differentiators that are just not available elsewhere? I don't know if we've done a good enough job. We did a mini focus group with our own patient and family advisory council, and we asked them, what do you think of when we say comprehensive cancer center? They do not know anything about NCI, and they think comprehensive means everything is there that's needed for my care. They don't see it as a formal designation. The same thing with the Commission on Cancer, NAPBC, you know, a lot of the accreditations. I don't know if we've gone far enough to really tout the value and why these are important investments that we make to ensure quality and adherence to standards and so on. And have you had much success with payers, for example? Because uh, again, the group had talked about the fact that many of these community providers are lower cost, at least apparently lower cost, maybe over the long term, they're not. Uh, yet they, So they tend to refer their patients to different types of settings and maybe not the optimal setting for the patient's situation. Have you done anything along those lines and have you had successes there? So we've had moderate success, I would say, with mm-hmm. some of the larger payers who have centers of excellence designation. They do have specific criteria and you have to sort of, you know, reapply every year by submitting your data. It's largely outcomes data, I will admit. It's not necessarily cost per case or, you know, cost of therapy and so on. They really look at volume and outcomes, some of which might be argued are not necessarily sort of the right metrics to look at, but that's a whole different discussion. But for the most part, I think those centers of excellence on a national level are really valuable and uh, particularly for differentiated care like transplants or like total joints if we're talking about orthopedics. So I do see those as successful. And quite frankly, I've worked in organizations where those centers of excellence outcomes were potentially not going to make it for another year. And we quantified what the number of referrals we get through that designation are and the dollars attached to that. And it was significant. So of course, we worked really hard to make sure we did not lose that distinction. Those are the ones that I'm most familiar with in terms of the payers. The other opportunity that um, I've dabbled in a bit, and I would love to hear from our listeners, is around employer contracts, uh, direct to employer contracts. By that, I mean having a center of excellence designation so that you can go directly to a self-insured employer, let's say like United Airlines or, I don't know, Walmart. And for particular cases, you become the preferred provider, either nationally or regionally, where they might mandate or at least encourage their employees based on quality, service, and cost to go to your institution for that care. Um, I think that's a a really strong and competitive differentiator uh, and strategic imperative that many of us are either starting to look at or would like to get involved in, and we could probably use some third-party help like Kinetics. Right. That that last point is very well taken. I've been involved in some of those discussions, and I think they have tremendous promise. Yes. A quick comment. I think uh, there are opportunities to get people teed up on the on the front end of their diagnosis correctly in the community. I've been doing some research that 
seems to indicate that it takes longer in the community for the community to embrace and adopt new cancer therapies. They're a little bit behind. They lag a little bit behind the academic centers. So in a new case where you're actually have a new diagnosis, making sure that the patient has the right baseline diagnostics so that if their cancer progresses and they need to come to the academic cancer center, you've got all the baseline diagnostics done correctly. And then also, if that particular cancer has a new therapy available to it, the academic center is more likely to know of it and be comfortable administering that new therapy. Whereas in the community, they may be waiting to see, they got therapeutic inertia. They're kind of waiting to see how will it turn out and not be as comfortable trying the new therapy for a particular cancer that may have one. So finding a way to collaborate between the community and the academic centers in a positive way, not to take the patient away, but to get the patient started on the right track in the beginning, and then to manage them and have all the information available should the patient's condition progress and then need a higher level of care. But if we can find ways to strengthen those collaborations on the very front end, that would be helpful as well. I'll just add an addendum. You can edit this out if you wish, but I think the point that Warren just made about where you start and that baseline data, and it starts oftentimes with pathology. And that is absolutely a differentiator for, for NCI-designated cancer centers, and I would say even largely you know, academic medical centers, where the pathologists have subspecialization, not just in cancer, but in specific tumor types that you will not get in a community setting, be it a private practice or community cancer center, um, just by the scale and the, you know, the, the way that they can attract those subspecialists. And it really does boil down to, you know, where you start can make a difference if they miss a diagnosis or they just, you know, get it wrong or they don't get all the margins that can really change the course of treatment and outcomes. So I think, you know, focusing on that diagnostic piece as a differentiator is absolutely critical to differentiating from other, quote, competitors. Ellen, as an administrator, you probably got these calls. Sarah, maybe you got these calls too, but I would get calls from patients and they would say, or from the patient's caregiver saying, can you please help me? I was diagnosed with X and then they walked me down the hall, they got some diagnostics done, and then they took me across the hall to the other side where I met the surgeon. I've had surgery, I've started therapy, it's only been three weeks, and now I'm sitting here thinking, did I do the right thing? And I'm not sure. So right. I always recommend that people get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that you don't have time to get a second opinion, but you may have gotten those calls as well, Ellen. It always breaks my heart because I have seen people that rushed into their therapy, yeah. and they yeah. probably shouldn't have rushed into it. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen it where we used to, it, there used to be such a delay in getting patients from, you have a type of cancer, and then you need to see someone from surgeries, a medical oncologist, a surgical oncologist, you know, various people. And that's where these, um, you know, specific tumor line clinics came in, where you can come in as a newly diagnosed um, patient with a certain type of cancer. And to your point, 
point, Warren, you're in one room, you speak with medical oncology, you go to another room, speak with surgical oncology. And we used to think that that was a good thing. And it really was in terms of closing the um, diagnosis to treatment gap. However, you know, when you really listen to patients, it's incredibly overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like when you fix one of those problems, you kind of exacerbate the other. And Ellen, I did key in on something that you said earlier about the diagnosis being an emotional emergency. And I think that's so critical because a lot of times there's the panic that sets in. I have cancer. I need to treat this right now. You know, time is ticking. And so how many patients really do, number one, understand the opportunities that they have for second opinions? Number two, how do you go about getting those second opinions and what, you know, they don't always understand that it is an okay thing to do. So, you know, well, I don't want to offend my doctor that's going to be treating my cancer and hopefully saving my life. So I think we, you know, as we strive towards these metrics, we also need to consider that emotional piece, but also that access piece. Because again, if, if the best um, treatment pathology or whatnot, it's going to take three weeks to get that appointment, I'm probably going to go straight to my community oncology um, group to go ahead and get something started. So those are all things we need to, I think, continue to consider as we work towards improving cancer care for our patients. So Ellen, you made a comment earlier that really intrigued me. I don't know that, I can't remember the term you used, but you said not the new normal, the current normal, something like that. The now that. normal. The now normal. Thank you. That was, that was a really good term. So tell us a little bit about what's different for, uh, of the from the, the prior normal to the now normal? What's really changed since then? Well, I think a lot of the changes we highlighted earlier, Neil, and that is, again, digital visits, uh, the use of televisits, something we always wanted to happen, but we had so many barriers around crossing state lines and the practice of medicine, corporate practice of medicine and getting reimbursed. Uh, and as I said earlier, really the genie is out of the bottle. So that is certainly a now normal. The other now normal is the expectations that patients will have a safe environment to go to. No one really thought mm -hmm. about, you know, getting into an elevator with other people, unless maybe you were immunosuppressed and told to avoid people at all times. So the stem cell transplant patients and the organ transplant patients are really now setting the bar for all of us. They know to avoid, you know, small children, pets, and crowded places, particularly in public. So those are now normal. I think the other now normal that we're facing as a challenge is, you know, we haven't really talked about cancer screenings. So much was deferred early on in terms of surgical procedures, but even those other types of procedures, whether they were colonoscopies or mammograms, or other types of exams that we would routinely encourage patients to get were either shut down or patients were afraid to come in. So uh, reassuring patients through whether it's vaccinating all of our staff or masking policies and social distancing policies, those are absolutely a now normal. You know, no one really, I shouldn't say no one, but when I see a sign in a store now that says mask required, that's not, you know, an affront anymore because we realize this is what we have to do. 
in order to stem, you know, any kind of resurgence or surge. Uh, so those are some of the now normals. I Great. think too, the, the empathy piece that I mentioned is definitely uh, something I think as leaders and just coworkers that we did not fully embrace before. What, what is the current state of virtual care in cancer as opposed to in general? How, how does it compare? Um, I can't speak to all other specialties, mm-hmm. but I think probably the, the one service area that has embraced and really benefited from video visits and virtual care has been behavioral health. And of course, in support of oncology, that's a large part of what we do, whether it's social services or psycho-oncology services. In terms of actual treatment, you know, there's not a whole lot of virtual chemo that we can deliver or virtual radiation therapy, but for follow-up visits that don't necessarily require a physical exam, I think those have really benefited both patients and provider organizations. So those are some of the areas that, that I've seen, and I, I would you know, be curious to hear from the group uh, any other changes that might have happened. Thank you. Great. I agree that behavioral health, the implementation of telehealth within the behavioral health space has gone well beyond just oncology care. Um, you know, some of the projects that we've worked on, we've heard from others that the the um, rate of attending appointments has gone up. Um, I think that that's, from what I've been hearing, that's pretty much across the board. It has um, been a great benefit because if you're depressed or if, you know, fatigue being one of the number one concerns of cancer patients, it's so much easier, not just in coordinating rides and everything else, but just being able to feel the confidence of, okay, I can still talk to my provider, but I don't have to go through the physical act of getting ready, going across town. I think that's um, been a huge benefit um, for patients. And I know you didn't want to use the word silver lining and I understand why, but you know, that's definitely one of those elements. Okay. This is where we will once again, press the pause button. We will come back for the final part, part three, next week. Ellen Feinstein is a great friend, colleague, and healthcare leader, and I appreciate her partnership in exploring the critical issues in healthcare, especially those focused on achieving the quadruple aim for cancer patients. In part three, Ellen, Neil, Sarah, and I will wrap up this discussion talking about how the pandemic has added to the total burden of care for cancer patients and also suggestions for how we can keep patients on their therapies in order to optimize outcomes. Special thanks to Ellen, Neil, and Sarah for sharing their time and expertise with us today. Well, this wraps up another week of TKG's Healthcare Insights. Thank you for joining us. We welcome your suggestions, ideas, and requests for podcast topics of interest. Please email us at oncology at thekineticsgroup.com and write Insights Podcast in the subject line. Thank you. Have a safe and healthy day. You have been listening to TKG's Healthcare Insights, a program produced by the TKG Oncology team of the Kinetics Group. TKG Oncology empowers life science companies to effectively engage with health system and payer customers by developing strategies and real-world solutions aimed at impacting the right patient at the right time with the right care. We also work directly with health systems and payers to address the critical issues of our time. We would love to hear from you reach out to us at tkgoncology.com. Thank you for joining us today.